0: The new Super Beats Hard Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, and save 15% with promo code DEAL.
1: Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina has hundreds of pet food recipes that are made without artificial flavors or preservatives and is striving for 100% recyclable or reusable packaging by 2025 so that they can help make the world a better place. Learn more at Purina.com slash cares. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 23rd. Today, federal law enforcement in American cities. The downsides of COVID for Kenya's wildlife and the return of baseball.
2: So we first saw a a very heavy militarized response to civil unrest here in D.C., including involving the National Guard and every federal law enforcement agency. Now, with similar unrest in Portland, we're seeing the Department of Homeland Security deploy a very heavy response in response to violence outside a courthouse there. I'm Matt Zapatosky. I'm a national security reporter here at The Post.
3: Take a break, Take a they Take a break,
1: I think that there are a lot of questions about the tactics that federal officers are using during these protests. But there are also questions about just like who are these people and why are they the ones who are responding to this?
2: Yeah. So most of these people are with the Department of Homeland Security. That's an agency. It is a federal law enforcement agency kind of formed in the wake of 9-11. You know, Really, I think the primary motive for forming it was terrorism, right, and the fact that um, there was a terrorist attack that the U.S. failed to prevent.
1: And, and I think that's what confuses me, is that when I think of DHS, I think of either counterterrorism or immigration enforcement, border control, stuff like that. Like, not people who are supposed to be cracking down on protesters in the middle of, of cities.
2: Yeah, that that is the the right way to think about it. That's what DHS does. They also have like the Secret Service, which protects the president and does some cybercrime investigation. They do the border protection, as you mentioned. They do have a component called the Federal Protective Service that protects courthouses. So that arguably is is kind of in the heartland of their mission. But in addition to some of those components, you've seen these BORTAC teams, which is almost like the way to think about it is the SWAT of DHS. They, they typically respond to like narco-terrorism type stuff being deployed on the streets of Portland. So this is definitely outside what people normally conceive of as the Department of Homeland Security's mission. Frankly, any response to unrest on the streets is typically a local or state police department thing. The federal government doesn't generally get involved. It doesn't mean they never get involved, but generally that's not a thing the federal government in any capacity does.
1: And what have federal officials been saying about why they're using DHS in this unusual way under these circumstances?
2: Well they're saying that they have a responsibility to protect the federal courthouse. They have tr- they have sought to say that the situation in Portland is very very extreme that the violence there has been extreme that they've had protesters using slingshots to just launch projectiles at officers that officers are essentially under siege and so is the federal courthouse. There have been efforts to set the federal courthouse on, on fire. So they need to bring an aggressive federal response, Trump has also kind of in Portland and elsewhere, frankly, just cast local mayors as sort of unwilling to respond as aggressively as he would like to unrest and to violent crime. And he's kind of conflated those things. So that's the explanation that the the department or the administration, I should say, has given that this is a real problem and the federal government has to get involved.
1: Well, because now President Trump is talking about extending this kind of response to other cities. Today, I'm announcing a surge of federal law enforcement into American communities plagued by violent crime. Even though those other cities are not actually experiencing these types of protests. What is going on with that?
2: Yeah, so that's a little bit different. Technically, there are two different things. There's like Operation Diligent Valor, which is specific to Portland. DC, if it had a name, I don't know it.
1: Who comes up with these names?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Separately, a couple weeks ago, kind of before Portland really was dominating headlines, the Justice Department unveiled this operation that they called Operation Legend in Kansas City. And it was kind of a classic violent crime fighting thing. They surged. it was like more than 200 Justice Department agents, FBI, ATF, DEA, to help that city with violent crime. Just yesterday, President Trump announced they're going to do that in Chicago, which has had
0: a a real violent crime problem this year. The FBI, ATF, DEA, U.S. Marshal Service and Homeland Security will together be sending hundreds of skilled law enforcement officers to Chicago to help drive down violent crime
2: and Albuquerque, New Mexico. Of course, those aren't places, this is not to say those places haven't had protests, but we haven't seen the kind of scenes there that we have in Portland. And the attorney general, the DHS secretary have sought to say, look, this is different than what's happening in Portland. These um, agents that we're deploying are going to go join existing federal local anti-violence task forces, uh, you know, sort of crime fighting task forces. But President Trump is kind of casting this as all a piece, right? Democrat mayors have let their cities get out of control, and I, the federal government, need to go help them. In Portland, that's civil unrest. In Chicago and Albuquerque, that's violent crime. But the point that he's trying to make, and his critics say this is just a political one, right? His critics say you're just trying to score political points and attack Democrat cities to help your re-election campaign.
1: Well, especially when you have Democratic mayors who are saying, we don't want you here, that, that these people are not, it's not like they have invited these people in or asked for help like they were calling in the National Guard or something.
2: Right. You have not seen that. Now, Chicago's mayor sort of said yesterday after this was announced, look, he clearly heeded my warning. He's not sending people in here as he is with Portland. But she added, it's unclear how effective this will be in helping us stop violent crime. Time will tell on that. And she also expressed some wariness that will this shift into a thing like Portland? Will federal officers really be on the streets pushing the bounds of their legal authority. Mayors are very worried about that in New Mexico and Albuquerque. Similarly, the mayor was like, look, we don't want these guys. This is just a stunt.
1: And is there a concern here that this isn't just a temporary measure, that this isn't just in response to acute protests that are happening in this one place, that this could lead to a permanent expansion of this role or something that is more like a national police force that is running around trying to crack down on American citizens?
2: Among the mayors um, whose cities could be seeing more agents, definitely that's a concern. The concern is that even though the stated uh, purpose of some of this deployment is just traditional violent crime fighting, that this is actually just a ploy to get a broader presence of federal law enforcement in cities across the country. So definitely among the mayor and among critics of President Trump, I guess I'd also note like when the federal government does something like this, it's in some ways precedent-setting. So like when the federal government during the Rodney King riots is asked to invoke the Insurrection Act and does and, and, and you know, contemplates sending in troops, that makes it a precedent for the next time. So every boundary that we're seeing being pushed now, I think legal analysts would say, that's the new starting point for the next time something like this happens. And that's worrying to some people. When you push the boundary, the next person who pushes it pushes it even farther. So that is a concern among some people.
1: And you mentioned that some people think that this is more of a political ploy by President Trump. I- I'm curious more about that, because the way that President Trump talks about this, it- it's almost like we're at war. And in some ways, I think that that is something that President Trump feels very comfortable doing or feels like is a a path toward reelection, is Being a wartime president and and having something that's like it's us versus them when you're voting. Think about like the fact that we are in a battle for the country.
2: I think Trump from the beginning of his presidency has sought to cast himself as the law and order guy, as the back the blue guy. At his inauguration, he gave this very fiery speech that actually I was reminded of when he was speaking yesterday about surging federal agents, talking about American carnage and how our streets were out of control. And he's used that rhetoric throughout his presidency. He clearly sees this as a political benefit. Um, in some stories I, I was doing sort of right at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, some presidential historians I was talking to were saying, look, the summer of civil unrest is maybe a good thing for President Trump because he can posit himself as restoring normalcy. The summer of coronavirus is not so good for President Trump. And in fact, yesterday, you saw Chicago's mayor responding to President Trump's speech saying, this is a political stunt. He's just trying to distract from his failures on COVID-19. So I think when critics are saying, this is political, they're saying Trump sees this as a way to win re-election, as a way to convince voters America is out of control and he is the one to bring it back under control and restore normalcy. We'll see if that strategy works. You know, we'll see how voters perceive that. In some ways, his rhetoric has increased the number of people on the streets because now they're not just protesting systemic injustice, racism, police brutality. They're protesting specifically President Trump sending federal agents into their streets. So in some ways, his rhetoric is exacerbating the problem.
1: That that he's creating the situation that he is saying is necessary for him to take extreme measures to eliminate.
2: Right, and we will see how that plays with voters essentially. He sees that clearly as a winning strategy. You know, we'll see what voters think of that.
1: Matt Zapatoski is a national security reporter for the Post.
4: This is a perfect storm for tourism. The travel restrictions that are in place around the world, it's like it's like the Grim Reaper has come for tourism. It's the worst possible scenario for that industry. The impact of the loss of tourism is something that you can see uh, everywhere in Kenya. I mean, it's a country that... Almost one in every $10 that comes into Kenya comes from tourists. And whole regions of the country are dependent on tourists coming to have a robust economy.
1: Max Barak is the Nairobi bureau chief for The Post. He's been reporting on the sudden halt in tourism because of the coronavirus, and how it's impacted not just Kenya's economy, but also its wildlife and uh so we will just be waiting for the elephants but there's so much to look around There's just a lot to be able to see um in this uh, conservancy right now you can see the grass is green and uh, all the animals are so happy and then there is that uh quake kenya
4: and a lot of african countries are places where the non-urban population is primarily farmers and cattle herders those people are being given a new option, which is you can lease away land that you would have used for farming or herding to just become wild land again and actually get paid more than the average Kenyan salary just to do that. That is enabled entirely by money that comes from, say, an American who wants to come and take pictures of elephants. But when that American who wants to come and take pictures of elephants can't come here.
3: Uh, we look forward to
4: welcoming you uh, when uh, things get back to normal. And we hope that you're staying safe. Okay, uh, make sure you wash your hands. And remember to- then that whole economy or that whole impetus to lease the land out to these safari companies ends because the safari companies say, sorry, I can't pay you anymore because I've got no revenue. We
1: look forward to welcoming you. Oh, look, elephants.
4: (laughs) It's a disaster for that part of the economy. And it's not just even specifically the safari economy, but there's so many other parts of the economy that are tied to that around, you know, car hiring and catering. So there's ripple effects that go
1: way beyond. So during normal times, what would it usually be like at one of these conservancies?
4: I think for most people who come to them, this is a bucket list item in their life. And they decide to come and see one of you know, one of the great natural wonders of the world, which is the African savanna filled with all sorts of wildlife from hyenas to lions. Well,
1: There's a beautiful view, fantastic. There are wildebeest as far as the eye can see. And um, they, this is where they, they, they calf, this is where they mate. and uh,
4: You can they, get right, time right time up next to them. them park the safari Jeep and have a lunch with chilled wine from a cooler. And you're staying in a luxury tent that isn't a tent in the way that you would normally think about it, but almost like a a hotel room, just all sorts of of high-flying amenities that are included in these kinds of vacation packages.
1: We've heard a lot of examples from around the world during covid that you know while this has obviously had this very grave effect for humans and for our economies that it's actually been really good for the environment and allowed a lot of natural habitats to to have a chance to recover a little bit without having constant human traffic. Is that the case here
4: no it's it's pretty much the opposite and and the reason for that is because. This, I mean, this is fundamentally a story about land that has been turned into a business, an ecosystem rather, really, that has been turned into a business. Basically, that business relies on tourism money coming in to convince people who otherwise would use that land for farming or grazing to instead leave it to the wild animals who are such a draw for tourists around the world. But now that those tourists are not coming and it becomes harder to convince those people to continue leasing their land over to safari companies, they may want to take back that land and stop leasing it. And so I think a big concern for conservationists is that the sudden drop in tourism revenue is going to precipitate the reclaiming of supposedly wild land, which is, of course, also land that's being used for business, to people who want to use it for other purposes.
1: And how does that play into the issue of poaching as well?
4: Well, I think that there is also a a big potential that uh, could increase we haven't really seen that yet. But poaching, the way to think about poaching is it's a result primarily of poverty. People wouldn't poach if there were other ways for them to make more money. And another way for people who live in in these parts of Kenya, where I reported the story to make money, is to lease their land to safari companies. So if they aren't getting money from leasing land to safari companies anymore. Then some of them may, may look to poaching as a way to make money or otherwise even just to eat.
1: So so it sounds like the fact that the tourism dollars have dried up very suddenly that is not just damaging for the people who live out there and for the industry around it but but it's just it's also damaging for the land itself and for the animals who live on that land because their preservation is paid for by tourism.
4: Yeah, I mean in a way it's just like any Other business, you know, the Savannah of southern Kenya is no different because that land has been converted from cattle herding in this case, which would be a business that actually might not get affected as much by the coronavirus into one that is profoundly, I mean, almost totally affected by the pandemic.
1: And what does covid look like there? Like do they have a significant number of cases right now?
4: I mean the really painful irony of of this situation in Kenya is that the virus has not spiked here in the ways that it has in Brazil and India and Europe and the United States and the the county that contains the Masai Mara, which is the area that we wrote about in the story, has less than 40 cases and no deaths. So, I mean, this is an ecosystem and an economy that has been crippled despite having relatively little exposure to the virus itself.
1: So, what... Is the solution here or are there any short-term solutions? Is it simply a matter of, of hoping that travel restrictions eventually get lifted and that people start trickling back in?
4: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of just hoping going on. Um, Kenya has announced the reopening of its borders to international flights starting in just a week or so. But I think that most tourism operators here don't expect to get normal bookings until 2023. So in the meantime, they're kind of looking around for money to come in from well-wishers, to come from donor agencies, whether they're governments or nonprofits. And it's kind of scrounging around for money and hoping that they can keep enough of the land that those those reserves of, of wild land don't become so small that they can't sustain large animal populations, which will be necessary to rebuild the business once people are able to travel here
1: again. Max Barak is the Nairobi bureau chief for The Post. now one more thing from sports reporter Dave Shinin.
3: Today is Thursday, July 23rd, and tonight is opening night for Major League Baseball. Four months after the original opening day was to have happened, we will be at Nationals Park tonight with the Washington Nationals playing the New York Yankees. First pitch at 7.08 p.m. thrown by Max Scherzer, the Nationals ace. This season is going to look, feel, and sound like no season in Major League Baseball history. Start with the fact there's going to be no fans in the seats. You know, there's going to be canned noise pumped in over the loudspeakers. Players sitting in the first rows of the stands because of social distancing guidelines. In other words, they can't all fit in the dugout. New rules put in place this season only. Pitchers routinely lick their fingers. Batters spit on the ground. They spit into their batting gloves for, you know, better traction. All of that is outlawed now. Players sweat all over the ball. Pitchers like to rub sweat onto it to rub the ball down and get a better grip on it. If more than one position player touches the ball is going to be taken out of play and disinfected behind the scenes and then held for five days before it can be put back into a game players are going to have to avoid spitting chewing tobacco high-fiving each other a lot of things that are very um, just done without thinking in baseball for years and years and years players are going to have to take it upon themselves to keep those in mind and not do it We're talking uh, a thousand players. And, you know, the opinions vary. I mean, there are the super gung-ho, let's get out there and and play versus players who are very hesitant and very kind of worried and are open and honest about that worry. But I would say in general, the consensus seems to be that it's going to be safe. And so they're going to go out there and play. There have been about a dozen players who have opted out. Uh, There have also been, you know, a a few dozen positive cases. And of course, those players are sidelined and have... to go through an entire different set of protocols and they have to pass two negative tests in order to come back so there is all sorts of range of of stances and opinions towards the season but the vast majority of players are on board nobody knows exactly how this is going to end in the best case scenario it ends with uh, the world series and and a champion uh, walking off the field as 2020 world series champions And the rest of us debating for the rest of eternity whether it's a legitimate title or not because of the shortened season and all the circumstances. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is an outbreak. I do know there are a lot of people in the game. I would put myself in this category as well who believe that this is not going to make it to the finish line. Obviously, baseball wants to avoid that. They're doing everything they can to avoid that. But, you know, we're up against the numbers and, you know, there's five teams in California. There's a team in Arizona. There's two teams in Texas, two teams in Florida. I mean, states where the outbreak is far from contained and in fact is spreading at record pace. So um, there are a lot of hurdles here. I can tell you that there is no hard and fast number that We'll shut down the season. In other words, I think baseball just sort of is taking the attitude, we'll know it when we see it. We'll know when we can't go forward any, anymore and, and we'll have to shut it down. But um, I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like.
1: Dave Shrinin covers national baseball for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, how one Black police officer started to think differently about his job.
3: The Black skin that we're in is a threat to the police department, period. And it just wasn't designed to work for us.
1: I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.